Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening. And it is great because I have Father Mike Ritter with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Father Mike, great to have you with me another Wednesday evening. Hey, thank you, Joe. So, it is Wednesday evening, and that means we are examining the world stage, more specifically, Father Mike, where we find Christ in cinema where we might find Christ in a book. And really this evening, I think we're going to be talking about both more or less, because this evening we are going to be talking about just not the Chronicles of Narnia, but more specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I know many, if not all of our listeners, are very familiar with the story. And as someone who once taught the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the book, I'm going to be thinking about the book alongside of the movie. And as I do that, Hopefully, that will afford us the opportunity to engage this extremely rich movie. Oh, it's such a classic book, and then it was taken up by Disney, I believe, yeah. into really mm -hmm. a great movie. And so, to really do this right, I think, Father Mike, we have to look at C.S. Lewis. So, mm -hmm. tonight, this evening, might be part one to part two, yeah. because <clears throat> I think we talked about this with Frank Capra and Stephen King. If you really want to get... Uh, what a movie is about or, or what a book is about, you really do have to appreciate the author or, or the producer director because what they are writing or, or what they are producing and directing comes from a particular place, comes from a particular experience they may have had. And when it comes to C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, a story that is saturated, saturated with Christian imagery and religious symbolism, certainly... It comes from a particular place. And so what I would like to do, Father Mike, is, again, talk about C.S. Lewis a little bit and do so within the context of his conversion, mm -hmm. because his conversion was very important to really what gave birth to the Chronicles of Narnia series and The Lion, the Witch, and the See, Wardrobe. And that's interesting because I've always, I mean, I've grown up with C.S. Lewis as one of the more prolific kind of Christian authors, but I wasn't aware. Now, he was an atheist before? He was an atheist, and his first real important encounter happened when he was 19 years old. Huh. Uh, he was in Oxford, he was in the army, he was training for the Great War, and he met a, a man by the name of Lawrence Johnson. Hmm. Now, this was an important encounter because Lawrence Johnson, unlike many of the guys he, he had met there in Oxford, was well-versed in the arts. He, he loved to talk philosophy, he loved to talk about the humanities, he just loved to talk about the stuff of God. Mm. But again, <laughs> Clive Staples was an atheist, right? So yeah. he wasn't sure what to do that. Well, he got to know him. And in a book, and there's, there's a great book out, Father Mike, uh, a book written by Joseph LeConte titled A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and a Great War, How Tolkien and Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in the Cataclysm of the Great War. Mm. So a, a beautiful book. In this book, he talks about his encounter with this second lieutenant, uh, Lawrence Johnson, and he's kind of reflecting into what he was experiencing after his death, and he said this, I had hoped to meet him at Oxford someday, 
and renew the endless talks that we had had out there. I can hardly believe he is dead. Uh, reflecting later, Lewis declared, If he was alive, he would have been a lifelong friend, and if he had not been killed, I'm sure he would have had a lot to do with my ongoing journey out from atheism. He was a friend I admired and a friend that I had hoped to get to know after the Great War. Uh, so clearly, this was someone who had an, an impression upon him. In this uh, piece, he talks about <laughs> how there would be lulls in fighting in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And he would be talking about God with this <laughs> second <laughs> lieutenant, Lawrence Johnson. And I just yeah. love that. And so in other books, he would kind of go back and reflect into those conversations he had. And so it really did have a huge impact upon his own spiritual journey. Now, the big encounter, the major encounter that he had was, of course, with Tolkien. Mm -hmm. That is well documented. What's interesting about that encounter and their many conversations among the many things they talked about was this struggle he had, that is C.S. Lewis, Father Mike, with myth. Right. Specific to the creation narrative. As we know, Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is all about the prehistory of the world, right? Uh, before we can really date the Bible. And so he struggled with Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And as he did, it was really a struggle with myth. And Tolkien stepped in and really helped him better understand what myth was all about. So for C.S. Lewis, initially it was, well, okay, myth can serve a purpose, but, but for who? The Romans, the Egyptians, and the Greeks? Yeah. But for Christians? Right? Yeah. But Tolkien explained to him, myth is a genre, right? It is a way of explaining a particular truth. Oh, yeah. And this, I think this continues to be a, a struggle for Christians and just for us today. Uh, we were sharing earlier, you go into the bookstore, we... I mean, really, culturally, we don't have uh, a genre for that. You know, we, we have, um, you go and see a movie in the theater and we'll say, this story was based on a true story. And if it's not a true story, then it's fiction mm -hmm. you know, or science fiction or whatever. And so myth is something that's still, I think, a bit uh, elusive for us culturally as a bearer of truth. Mm. Amen to that. That's well said. Now, when it comes to C.S. Lewis's conversion it was a full conversion to Christianity. We know that because, as you were just saying, when you think about C.S. Lewis, you really do think about one of the most prolific authors. Yeah, I, d I honestly, I didn't know he was an yeah. atheist. Yeah, and so in that process of converting to Christ, he had learned a language, and he talked about this so often uh, that he just never knew before. Hmm. And where did it start for him? But the language of poverty. Hmm. The language of poverty, Father Mike. I had the beautiful opportunity of getting to know someone who actually knew C.S. Lewis. Uh, his name is Father Henry Waynesboro. He's a Benedictine monk. I believe he's still alive. I had him for two separate courses in Scripture. Uh, he was 88, I think, uh, and I had him at Oxford. Like, this was, gosh, eight years ago now already. But, gosh. And he would talk about these encounters he had, and, and I wish I had the time to really get into those encounters because the real famous story he tells is the fact that uh, he was first a literature scholar this Father Henry Waynesboro, and in the 1940s, he was actually hired by C.S. Lewis himself. That's cool. Now, what's really interesting about this is that uh, Father Henry Waynesboro was and, and is, to my knowledge, very close friends with Benedict XVI, but Benedict XVI doesn't have anything on C.S. Lewis as far as kind of his <laughs> claim to fame, right? Yeah. But as he would talk about C.S. Lewis, he would have this respect, Father Mike, that I, in turn, ultimately would have for him as he would just talk about him, and it was this deep sense of poverty. He owned very little. Any proceeds he had gained from the radio he was doing or the books he was selling were donated to charity. In point of fact, 
at the end of his life, uh, he kind of signed off that all proceeds from everything that is sold after his death goes to certain charities in England. So I just thought that to be um, pretty cool because he's, he's witnessing to this man who he had encountered. Oh, yeah. I think certainly this is what you see and, and read about in some of his great pieces. Oh, yeah. He's definitely putting flesh on the bone. He, he very much is. Very much is. Now, out from this humility, he said, you know, towards the end of his life, he thought he would just be forgotten within a few years. <laughs> but as we know, <laughs> his book, and I should say books, and, and all of that which he wrote really not only sold well, but continues to sell well. In point of fact, in 2008, there was a survey done in England, what is the most popular children's book out there? And it wasn't Harry Potter. It wasn't Lord of the Rings. It was the Narnia series. So you're talking yeah. a man about a man of prodigious thought, and oh, yeah. he produced so much. So, Father Mike, I guess the question that begs to be asked here is, why does it retain such an appeal 55 years after C.S. Lewis's death, um, his death in November of 1963? Well, as a child, Lewis loved stories. But as we just discussed, he had very little interest in Christianity. So it was that he later came to wonder how stories might have helped him to embrace a faith that he neither understood nor appreciated. So on one occasion, he asked himself, what if stories could have opened up the wonder and joy of a faith that I had to wait two decades to discover? On a later occasion, he, he had said, I had begun to see how stories of this kind, that is, mythological stories, could still past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Father Mike, C.S. Lewis wanted to write an imaginative welcome to the Christian faith. You know, I, I was thinking of this. I, I was watching a show uh, the other day on Netflix, believe it or not, called A.D., and it's the story of the Acts of the Apostles, essentially. Okay, okay. And you know, I've, I've read that text a, a thousand times, but to, it kind of very much follows the old kind of Jewish tradition of the Midrash, you know, that you kind of take a familiar story and you embellish it, you place characters in it, and you just develop the drama. Mm -hmm. And there's something about... Um, the alternative world that C.S. Lewis creates, the kind of visual experience of this story being acted out by actors that somehow being drawn into the uh, the humanity of the of the story, the uh, just the dramatization that really um, brings home the core message, the core belief in in a very powerful way. And th this uh, alternative world that C.S. Lewis creates in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* certainly, as we to use the same term, or I mean, it puts flesh on the bone in terms of. Uh, this drama, which is salvation. Yeah, and what's really interesting about The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, and more collectively the Narnia series, is that while he had in mind and heart these images, these figures, uh, what Narnia would look like, he didn't necessarily have it flushed out in so far as what the exact allegory would look like. In point of fact, he even said specifically, I don't want you to first read this as an allegory. I want you to read this as an alternative world from which then can capture you. But okay? this, is, this is so much to the point of our program, and we began with this, that the Christ-haunted culture, that somehow yes. this great story of uh, salvation keeps recapitulating itself in all of our stories. It does, and C.S. Lewis says, you know, <laughs> it wasn't until the, the, the moaning lion came leaping in, as he put it, <laughs> that he had begun to see what God was wanting him to do. Yeah. And he was already telling the story. Yeah. So he had to go back and to rescribe some things. 
but it was one that just kind of came together over time. It wasn't something that was explicitly prescripted. And, and honestly, you know, Father Mike, if you were to talk to any writer, um, there are few writers that actually have all the details prescripted. You work on it, and you work on it more, and you work on it more, and yeah, you go back, and you go back, and you go back, and C.S. Lewis made the point. You know what? As I was writing, I'd begun to see that there was something pulling me like a magnet. That's cool. And it was the story of salvation history. Father Mike, with that, uh, there's so much to talk about. There's so many great lines. There's so much to reflect with. And again, this is probably going to lead into a second program. But the story itself, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Well, it really is fascinating, the context you get from C.S. Lewis and his uh, kind of uh, relationship with the lieutenant, is it? Yes. Because yes. this movie begins with a bombing run, you know, that mm-hmm. it must be World War II, I guess, is the, or is it World well, War I? Well, it's the Great War, World War I, yeah. World yeah, War I. Yeah. And so you, be, you open up uh, to the scene where there's kind of a bombing raid over a, a populated city, and you have these four siblings that are, you know, uh, they're taking shelter, their mother puts them on a train and kind of ships them out for, for a refuge, uh, because the city is more or less under siege, I suppose. And so they go, these four, uh, two brothers and, and, and two sisters, they go to stay in this, I mean, really a mansion of a professor. And mm-hmm. one day they're, uh, you know, they're somewhat at odds with one another, I suppose, uh, as siblings are. And one day they're playing hide and seek. And the youngest sibling, Lucy, she hides in a big wardrobe, like a closet with coats and whatnot. And she backs, it's kind of like a portal to this alternate world. And mm-hmm. uh, which is, and this alternate world is kind of caught in a perpetual winter. And so she she finds her way in there, makes friends with a, a fawn, which is like half human, half deer or whatever mm-hmm. the deer legs whatever mm-hmm. that is and and it should be noted that for c.s lewis and tolkien and many others during those days with the rise of all the technology there was this reduction in appreciating creation so mm-hmm. creation is a very rich theme in oh, all sure. of these books and writings yeah. and movies yeah so you have this uh, mythical creature uh her the second youngest uh, edmund also makes his way uh, through the portal and and during that time he meets the uh the ice, the, the queen. She calls herself yeah. the queen. Others call her the white witch. White witch yeah. But she kind of really resembles the, the the force, the reign of the evil, the dominion of evil in this alternate world. And she kind of seduces him with candy and cider and whatnot. She says, "Bring me your siblings." Anyway, they all, uh, after some disbelief, they all make their way into Narnia. And as they're getting situated, Edmund uh, slips away to kind of fulfill he want to fulfill his deal with the with the queen. The the White Witch. Um, so, you know, much, much happens. They, they become aware of the fact that there, there was a prophecy in Narnia that, that uh, two, uh, they, they call the human beings sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And the mm. prophecy was that there's been, it's been a hundred years since they've had a Christmas, a hundred years since they've had a spring. This world is caught in a perpetual winter under this kind of dominion of evil. Mm-hmm. But that the coming of, the, of, of human flesh was going to mark the beginning of a new springtime, a liberation. You can very much feel the anticipated salvation of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. coming. There's going to be this final battle uh, between good and evil, and finally peace and order, a uh, springtime is going to be restored. And Aslam, the, the lion, uh, the king, is going to come and, and lead this battle. Uh, so, you know, as they kind of connect with uh, Aslan and the forces for good, it it becomes clear that um, Edmund, the second to the youngest, he's kind of been cap- made captive by the queen, and they have to run kind of a rescue mission to bring him back. Um, probably at the heart of the movie is this. The queen comes demanding that the, the ancient magic of the world demands blood for his betrayal. 
And so she comes demanding Edmund's blood, and the king uh, agrees, Aslan, that he's going to sacrifice himself on an altar to satisfy the deep magic of the Mm -hmm. realm. Of course, the queen is elated with this. She's going to kill the lion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Little does she know and hear that the very powerful Christian allegory, uh, because of the power of his sacrifice, not only is the betrayer uh, forgiven, like she has to relinquish her claim on his blood, but he rises again from the dead, if you will, uh, helps Peter to lead their forces to victory in the battle. The four siblings become kings and queens of the realm, and the movie kind of ends with the sense that um, they're reigning in peace over the mm-hmm. land. One of the very striking things at the end of the movie, uh, Lucy, the youngest, was given a potion uh, that could heal any wound. And um, Edmund, in the final battle scene, is wounded. We assume kind of fatally, uh, by the queen, and Lucy comes over and gives him the potion. And the thing that struck me, mm. the first person to be healed when Aslan comes back from the dead is the betrayer. Yeah. So that's really how um, the movie the movie ends. Um, the kings, queens, they come back to the real world and their children again, and there's the professor uh, looking for them. And um, it, it ends with a great line, you wouldn't believe us if we told you what happened. And with kind of a glimmer in his eye, the professor says, well, try me. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. That was a great line. Well, and, and speaking of belief, kind of going back, uh, Father Mike, to the beginning, when Lucy's siblings approach their uncle about Lucy's bizarre belief in Narnia, after they admit that she has never been known to lie and does not appear to be insane, their uncle then replies that, well, logically, she mm-hmm. should be believed. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, that to be a pretty uh, insightful allegory into Christ himself. Oh, yeah. Where (laughs) did Christ say that he was the one true God? Did he give you any reason to not believe that he was the one true God? No. Then, Well, you know, this is interesting, you know, and we get so hung up on logic, and this is, well, logically, it can't be this and it can't be that. It's interesting, when I I get into debates with people about just faith issues or or whatever people's deep personal convictions are, and we all drink some of this tea. Sure, sure. But what I find at the heart of the argument, I don't agree. Why? Because I don't. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow that's logic. Yeah. I, I was just so touched, or I was so struck by that. Um, she's your sister. Why wouldn't you believe yeah. her? <laughs> you know, yeah, logically, yeah. she yeah. hasn't lied to you before. Why is she lying yeah. now? Well, it's interesting. What is logic? I mean, logic is the instrument to reason, and faith and reason are the great cross beams and girders to the intellectual tradition that really draws into belief in God, Yeah. right? And so <laughs> in that moment, yeah, something is to be captured specific to belief. Yeah. Um, and to some degree, you know, Father Mike, it, it is a matter of relationship, hmm. right? As faith is always a matter of relationship. So two things that captured my imagination as soon as they, get, they are all finally uh, in the, on the same page, they're all in the wardrobe, they say, oh, sorry, we didn't believe you. I mean, we believe you now. We're yeah, all here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know that um, being in this alternate world, um, the humanity of these four actors really comes into sharp perspective. Um, all of the, uh, the animals, all of the creatures, they refer to them as sons and daughters of Eve. Yeah, so rich. Which was just so deeply resonant. I mean, it's uh, deeply the, the biblical uh, imagery that's there. Uh, the humanity comes into just such sharp focus. Um, that and, and also one of the things that was very striking with me throughout the movie is all of the creatures, because of the prophecy or for whatever reason, they all they see the foretold royalty of these four children. And so they always mm. refer to them as your majesty. Yeah. 
And the kids are always kind of puzzled by that. But I mean, from the very beginning, um, this kind of uh, royal dignity, yeah. which comes with the promise, is always seen in them and reflected in them. And and maybe sometimes we have to step out in into this alternate world to kind of bring that into sharp focus. But that was very a very striking feature of the narrative for me. Yeah, we are all baptized into Christ's very own priestly role, prophetic role, and kingly role, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly as a priest, Father Mike, there is a unique vocation within that baptismal vocation. Sure. Um, The call within the call. But for everyone else, that's not a priest, right? Us lay members, we too are priest, prophet, and king. And we fulfill our priestly office when, yeah, we offer up our lives to God. But speaking specifically to the kingship and majesty, it does speak to the dignity to the dignity of the human person created in the image and likeness of God, who is a son of a king. Yeah, and <laughs> if there's anything in our culture, if there's a poverty or a crisis, it is the crisis of dignity. Mm. And uh, you know, and we, for any number of reasons, we uh, we fail to see the dignity of others. We fail to grasp the dignity we have. There's a great ancient text, a homily, uh, um, Christian: "Remember your dignity." Mm. Um, and this uh, dignity comes into question, certainly for Edmund, who is the betrayer. This dignity comes into question. Uh, there's such a great scene when they finally do uh, free him from the clutches of the queen. My favorite scene, by the way. Oh, this is oh my, yeah. <laughs> my and Aslan the Lion is kind of standing on a Gosh, precipice yeah. with a humbled Edmund, mm. and you, you could see uh, mercy taking place. Yeah. And he returns Edmund to the fold, if you will, to his brothers and sisters. And... Um, you know, the the lion, the king, he tells him, look, what is done is done, and we won't speak, speak of, of it, it again. again. And I absolutely loved it when Susan came over and gave him an embrace. Oh, you yeah. Know? <laughs> you know, and the siblings, when he comes back, says, hey, how are you? And he says, I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, you know, I get that. Yes. I get that. It's yes. exhausting. Sin is yes. exhausting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Peter, the older brother, who is probably the hardest on him of all of the siblings, kind of winks at him and says, hey, as he's going to take a nap or whatever, he says, hey, don't wander off. Yeah, You know, so th- that really is a moment of healing. Uh, it didn't come without uh, a very hefty price. As we mentioned, the, king, the queen uh, comes demanding his blood because uh, deep magic demands it. Yeah. And, uh, and so in a very powerful scene, uh, Aslan the king says, don't quote deep magic to me, which I was, I was there when it was cool. written. <laughs> yeah, I love you it. You know, and, and he'll go on to say as, as he's making his way up to sacrifice himself up the mountain, Golgotha, if you yeah, will, yeah, um, that you know she uh, she doesn't understand, or I guess this is after he raises from the dead. If she knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she would have interpreted the deep magic differently. Yeah, um, but but he. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and what is the deep magic? But the law, right? Right, the law, and I think we've touched upon this before, uh, Father Mike. What was the law of Narnia? What was the law of creation? On one hand. You know, it was perceived to be this external thing, but there's a deeper reality, and that's what Aslan was talking about. There's an interior reality, and of course, that's what he captured in The Great Sacrifice, which, oh, by the way, if I had a second favorite scene, it was when he was going up to the altar of sacrifice. I mean, just (laughs) the most foul creature. Oh, yeah, grotesque. (laughs) It's grotesque. Yeah, very much so. And when they they kill him, you know, they're, they're kind of rejoicing and say, so much for love. You know, that somehow just the, the grotesqueness of having uh, conquered altruism and, and love and faithfulness forgiven us. I mean, it, it really is a dark and uh, grotesque scene. Yeah. Using mythology is just a beautiful way of expressing how Christ 
outmaneuvered his opponent by actually walking through it. Oh, it was yeah. the least expected thing. Yeah. And yeah. and here's the thing, Father Mike, we we know this about Jesus Christ, but to have this play itself out on film was very rich. Yeah, and in, and in a sense, I mean, uh, evil defeats itself. Yeah. And yeah. Her, her celebratory cry was, did you really think that by all this you could save the human traitor? You've given your life and saved no one. Mm. So much for love. Mm. And it's, it's, that, that to me was just so evocative and so yeah. powerful. Yeah. There's the beautiful scene, too, um, after the fact, where you have these two ladies, mm-hmm. right? These two young ladies weeping upon Aslan. And of course, you know, the two Marys, if you will, there at the foot of the cross. Yeah. I thought that was beautiful, yeah, too. It was. it was very real. I, one of the things I was thinking about as I was watching this scene was that, you know what? They are doing nothing more than grieving the loss of, of the lion they loved. Yeah. And, and as they were, there was something being communicated there. Hmm. And of course, there's the great earthquake and there's yeah. the resurrection. And really the descent into hell, really, when yeah, he goes yeah. he goes to the queen's temple, or, or pa- a palace, rather, where everybody's frozen in ice and he breathes the breath of mm. life back into them, and they yeah. come back to join in this battle. Yeah. It really is uh, so rich in, in Christian imagery. I couldn't help but think of a Dante, Dante's Inferno, that when he kind of goes to the pit of hell, if you will, uh, for Dante, that uh, the devil is frozen up to his waist in ice. Mm. So the very pit of hell for Dante is not fire, it's ice. Yeah, and it's interesting because C.S. Lewis would have been very much tapped into oh, yeah. know, Dante's Divine Comedy. Yeah. So you really do have this descent to hell, and then uh, the lion comes back with all of those kind of resurrected ones, if you will, to join in this final kind of uh, eschatological battle yeah. uh, against the, the powers of evil in the yeah. world. Th- that was a big word you just used, eschatological. <laughs> no, but, but, this, but this movie is rich with eschatology. It is, have it, it is. the study it, of the end. It, right? just, yeah. it's, it is soaked in this New Testament sense that the, the coming of the kingdom of God is already here, and yet not completely, not in its fullness. And as you go throughout the movie, the, the frozen world is thawing out. Mm-hmm. You know, that springtime is coming, but it's not, not all the way there yet. Mm-hmm. It's so uh, saturated with that New Testament eschatology. Yeah, the, the already but not yet, yeah. right? The already but not yet. Father Mike, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of notes here that we didn't get into. <laughs> so I do too. <laughs> I do think that this is going to be part one to part two. I think so too, yeah. Because there are other things that I want to talk about as it relates to not only uh, The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe, but also C.S. Lewis, specific to um, things that come up in The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe that hopefully for our listening audience might evoke more uh, deeper sentiment towards just appreciating what we're, what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think this would be great to develop more. Yeah. So with that, you want to close with a word of prayer? We give you thanks, Father, for uh, that your presence among us, and we ask for your blessing upon us, upon all of our listeners, especially those most in need of our prayers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.